Welcome to Unpacking Impact, a podcast that explores how rapid digital transformation shapes economics, culture, jobs, policy, and of course, you. Each episode, we speak with thought leaders that are playing and changing the game at the highest levels. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Julia Neshawat. Dr. Julia Neshawat served as our nation's 10th Homeland Security Advisor. A former U.S. Army combat veteran, she's an expert on the intersection of climate change and national security, serving as Florida's first chief resilience officer. As commissioner on the U.S. Arctic Research Commission, the U.S. Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, and Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Energy, among many senior government roles. We discuss current threats to the United States, cryptocurrencies, and the intersection of climate change and national security. I'm Naveen Tukaram. I'm Andrew Schwartz. Let's begin. Well, Julia, great to have you on the podcast and great to see you again after so many years. Likewise. Thanks for having me, Naveen. So I thought we'd just jump right in because you have such an interesting career and just get to you sort of what we call your founding story. How did you get started on this career, both in the government and military service and everything in between? Well, it actually started back in, in college many moons ago. I knew I wanted to serve in some capacity or another, and, but wasn't really sure yet. I recall they had ROTC classes at my university, which is the Reserve Officer Training Corps for those who are not familiar. And I thought, oh, let me let me check it out, see how that goes with regards to the military and, and military service. And I found that with taking these classes, it gave me both the tactical training and the basic leadership principles to be, you know, in hospital environments and so forth, which prepared me to become an officer upon graduation. So I, I then went on to law school. And of course, when 9-11 happened, it really changed the trajectory of my career path. And of course, I saluted and, and went off to serve and ended up doing multiple consecutive tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. And at the end of the tours, you know, I learned so much, obviously, working with, you know, ambassadors, other agencies and departments, giving briefings with general officers. I was encouraged after the end of those tours to interview for my first Washington, D.C. job, which was with the WMD Commission, which was the follow on to the 9-11 Commission. So that really is what kind of just set that platform for my career in, in public service and, and in government. It's been quite an experience having to be able to wear many hats in those roles. And what drove that inspiration to actually do so much public service, especially to do so in a theater of war or two? You know, it's it's funny. Sometimes I call it these Forrest Gump moments where you happen to be at certain places in a certain time and being able to just step up to the plate and take the initiative to volunteer and, and serve where you can. I look back and it's not just in combat zones. I, I was working and living in Japan and went through a 9.0 earthquake and tsunami and dealing with a, a nuclear disaster. And it certainly inspired me to focus on dealing with hostile environments again and natural disasters. But the whole path, it wasn't a planned equation by no means. I've also been known to start up new agencies and departments and offices that had never existed before. So my passion, though, throughout all of this, ironically enough, was always under the environment or energy umbrella, if you will. And so I found these issues to be kind of a key major source when I saw all of this turmoil and security issues and diplomatic issues over the years. So having served in combat zones and embedded in local villages, you know, 
it's funny, I saw firsthand that if the locals didn't have the basic clean water or power or electricity, natural resources to be able to live, how can the broader security issues be a priority? So it kind of inspired me in that career path. And at one point, you were also on top of everything we talked about. You were America's leading hostage negotiator. Am I getting that correct? I helped build the first presidential envoy office for hostage affairs at the State Department and built that from scratch. Think about what happened back in 2012, unfortunately, with Americans being taken hostage by ISIS in these orange jumpsuits and brutally executed. There wasn't really a central focal point. A lot of departments and agencies had the portfolio of working with hostage issues, but it was never centralized in any way. And so with that creation of the envoy office and the fusion cell, I have to say, looking back, it was certainly one of the toughest but rewarding jobs I've ever had. And not so much in dealing with hostage takers, but rather working with the families of the hostages. You know, building those trusted partnerships were key. It was difficult in that even though we brought dozens of Americans home, couldn't really celebrate knowing that there are still others that were still out there, you know, in prisons or remote hostile areas. But I learned a lot about the value to build consensus and find creative ways to try to incentivize a release without paying ransom. So as you know, our podcast is all about digital transformation and innovation. You've been quite an innovator in government because that's not the only department or agency that you've created, right? Also on the energy side. Can you remind our listeners of that? This was at the State Department. I also helped build the first Energy Resources Bureau, serving as uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State. And so we also built that bureau from the ground up, literally building on energy diplomacy, working on oil and gas issues, energy transformation, looking at alternatives, renewable, nuclear efficiency. Of course, we have the Department of Energy who works a lot of these domestic issues, but to have a brand new bureau that could deal with the international policies, the economic policies, and how that affects us back in the home front was key. So being able to start that up from scratch was also a tremendous experience. And I imagine all those experiences built up to your role as White House advisor for Homeland Security. Can you talk a little bit about that? Give our listeners a scope of that responsibility and what you had to deal with. And then following that, what do you see as the primary threats to the U.S. today? Yes. So I get a call from the White House at the time I was, I was serving in the state of great state of Florida. They were looking for someone to take on the role for Homeland Security as well as Resilience And again, another opportunity to salute and serve even at the highest levels. Of course, this was right before the great pandemic of COVID was taking place. So never really understood the grand scope and how severe it was. But of course, a great, great honor to serve. But the role itself, you know, it covered everything from border and security issues to pandemics to election security. We looked at everything from supply chain issues, our grid infrastructure, critical infrastructure protection, which I'm happy to talk a little bit more about a number of threats, you know, that affect our homeland, including even the Arctic, which is another piece that was growing given the dynamics up there. But it was a great honor to serve. As far as, you know, primary threats to the U.S., gosh, I mean, first things that come to my mind are supply chain, cyber attacks to our great infrastructure. I mean, overall, the critical infrastructure protection CIP is a big piece of that. But when you think about cyber on our critical infrastructure, to me, it's most concerning because one, you know, our systems are still very vulnerable. There's a high likelihood that such attacks would be used by China or Russia or Iran or North Korea in any type of conflict, really. How long could most Americans go without electricity? God forbid our our grid infrastructure was attacked or our banking systems, for example. How much cash do most folks have in their wallet or carry, right? 
Another threat I would say would be definitely the pandemic. Imagine if COVID had been 20 to 30% more lethal versus the less than 1% of the death rates. I mean, we saw massive disruptions to our society, of course. A more lethal variant would certainly be devastating. And so when you think about the last three pandemics, they did come from China and each was worse than the last, unfortunately. And what worries me is we're not really seeing any efforts at this point in time from the Chinese government to try to prevent the next one. So hopefully we'll learn from that and, and hopefully build from that. The other threat I would say, obviously, most are more familiar with is international terrorism, of course. It received a real shot in the arm with the whole Afghanistan withdrawal. They now have the power of a state with a central bank. You think about their international airport and, of course, an army's worth of equipment. Meanwhile, our, our southern border, our coastlines are, are very open. We're on track to have almost 2 million apprehensions on the southern border just this year from over 70 different countries. So at the same time, you've got our Coast Guard, who I've worked closely with. They pretty much can only intercept about 10% of what they see on the radar coming into our coastline. So that's probably another area I would say that, you know, we really continue to heavily focus on. Wow, that's quite a number of areas to focus on for sure. Can we double click on some of the cybersecurity aspects, specifically around the energy grid, which is something that you're also an expert on? Talk us through what that might look like and what the U.S. can do to prevent something like that. When we think about cyber threats, you know, there's a saying in the cyber world that there are two types of online entities, especially in the U.S., those that have been hacked and those that just don't know that they've been hacked. Whether it's major energy companies, Fortune 500 businesses that have the resources for substantial IT and, of course, cyber defense programs, you're seeing that it is increasing. And I think it's getting better. It's, it's, it's getting to be more, I think, in good shape. But the issue really is the smaller companies that are struggling to make payroll, for example, or startup companies like app developers and so forth. So you're dealing with small businesses in the defense industry in the energy sector that really make a critical part, you know, when you think of rural electric companies that tend to be the pathways for hackers to really begin getting into bigger systems. So I think help there will be very important, especially for the more rural and smaller companies. And we rely, obviously, as a government on these sectors in particular, when you think about our power and, and clean water and transportation sectors. So it's an appropriate place too for, I would say, for where our government can certainly intervene and help, especially with the recent infrastructure package um, that will have a, a large grant program along those lines. You reference also the situation in Afghanistan. Obviously, there was a lot of coverage about the pullout and a lot of commentary on how it could have been done better. How does America move forward from here? What happened happened. How do we move forward from here? What advice might you give senior officials today on how they can mitigate some of what happened? This one certainly hits home, Naveen, for me and many other veterans. I mean, it's, it, it's truly sad. We certainly could have done better with, with the evacuations. And unfortunately, the country is growing rapidly as a safe haven for terrorists. And I think it's just a matter of time as we look at the threats towards the United States. Presidents on both sides of the aisles have wanted to get our soldiers home, of course. Nobody wants a long forever war. There were a lot of lessons learned here, for sure. When you think about the over-horizon terrorism option, for example, long-range drones, I mean, it's very limited. And I think we can improve in that in that area, number one. This reliance on Pakistan, we, we really need to be uh, more cognizant of that because it, it can be quite dangerous. And ironically enough, Pakistan has a long-standing relationship with the Taliban and so forth. But the Department of Defense is already saying that the threats will increase. ISIS could attack within six months and so forth. We 
first have to think about the vulnerabilities. We don't have any bases there, no local allies. And of course, the terrorists are, are now well armed. And I have to say, my heart really breaks for the status of the Afghan women and girls that were given decades of, of hope for a better future and, and education. And that's kind of been ripped away from them as well. But from a perspective of human rights and credibility with our allies and protecting the homeland, we really need to think about this and, and come up with a strategy moving forward. And it's not going to be easy, but it's something that I think we can certainly accomplish if we can address some of these issues. So in sort of the old days, I'm not sure when those those were, but there was a lot of bipartisan support for certain foreign policy initiatives. And you could have certain policies that would transfer from president to president, regardless of party. But given the polarization in our country right now, it appears that's much, much harder to do. Do you have any thoughts on that? You know, it's always important to have a you know a proper transition of power. I mean, before we left in the last administration in the White House, we, we ensured that we did proper briefings. We put binders and books together to make sure that the new administration can kind of pick up where needed when it comes to, you know, security threats and so forth. And so history teaches us so much. We've got to be able to look at that and, and really have a better understanding. At the same time, balance that with the new technology and innovation that's out there. I talk about some of this gloom and doom, but there's actually quite a bit of opportunity. And so being able to balance that of looking in the past and understanding that, but looking towards the future and how we can embrace that innovation, especially with what the Department of Defense is doing and other agencies and embracing the private sector in that, I think gives us such a great opportunity. And I think each president has has a role in that and how they can embrace that and building those public-private partnerships. Can you talk a bit more about how the military might be changing to become more technology savvy? Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. I mean, I, I was talking to the chief science officer. When we think about on the procurement side, for example, I mean, there are, there are a lot of various efforts to adopt models, especially from the private sector. That's where we, we learn. I can't help to think if you've watched Shark Tank. I mean, I think that's a great model that welcomes and rewards innovation rather than the long bureaucratic and expensive way internally developing certain systems. So I think if we can embrace those models, you're going to see a shift in what the military can do. And on the personnel side, Congress just passed a law requiring more STEM education in even ROTC programs before a cadet can, can become an officer. So I think if we're building more on the STEM education piece of that, that too will also help the military evolve to be more tech savvy. I wanted to shift to some of the work you've done in the Arctic, because I think that's a very unique skill set that we may never see again on the podcast. You were recently commissioner on the U.S. Arctic Research Commission, and you've traveled up to the Arctic Circle, I'm sure several times. What would you say the key opportunities are for Arctic development? And how's that going to change over the next few years? I think it's an area that most of our listeners are just unfamiliar with. Even from our, a government standpoint, we haven't really focused on this enough. And, and now it's great to see it becoming more and more of a priority. First, I would start with, we have to be in close coordination with the indigenous communities that live in the Arctic region. It's important that they have a role in the decision-making process. But yes, there's so many opportunities right now with Arctic development in Alaska and Canada, for example. There are partnerships for clean energy. In Greenland, there's there's an abundance of rare earth minerals that can be utilized and, and lessen the, the global dependence on China, because right now we obviously rely about 90% of rare earth minerals come from China. But there's great, great opportunity and potential for scientific research cooperation with the members of the Arctic Council. There's eight countries. They rotate with their chairmanship every two years. I think Russia now has the chairmanship. Having been able to travel up there and see firsthand, I mean, you know, no doubt the, the, the ice is, is certainly melting faster than any place else in the world. And so with the melting ice, you're seeing a lot more traffic 
a lot more shipping that's coming through other countries as well. So that's going to certainly create opportunity, but also challenges at the same time. In one article, I believe you called the Arctic the new El Dorado. What does that mean? And how is the Arctic going to contribute to global energy dynamics? And is there going to be a lot of players up there trying to claim, you know, a certain iceberg or a certain whatever? Please educate us on how that's going to work. It's exciting. The the energy sector for the Arctic, I think, will be transformational in a quick period of time. And there's, again, such potential for SMR, small module reactors, solar energy, geothermal is another one. We're learning a lot from Iceland, who's been a leader in, in that world. But the technology and innovation allows for you know cold-resistant means that are clean, that are safe, affordable, that could really lessen the dependence on fossil fuels. But yes, we're seeing more geostrategic competition with other state actors and countries. I mean, it's no secret that Russia and China have been quite aggressive in the, in the region, you know, with the new shipping routes. We are seeing an increase, like I said, in traffic. Think about illegal fisheries, military ship buildups and more. And then again, not to give a huge history lesson here, but, you know, with the rise of China economically, it's now having these unprecedented claims in the Arctic. And in fact, they self-declared themselves being a near Arctic state (laughs) so they could be an observer with the Arctic Council. You also have Russian militarization of the Arctic waters. You're seeing this increasing convergence, if you will, between Russia and China. And those geopolitical tensions are certainly heightened between Russia and the United States. And so you have this global rivalry that's building up between the U.S. and China, all all being entangled with the Arctic and with this renewed great power competition. Back in 2018, if, if anyone hasn't read it yet, China released its first white paper on the Arctic strategy and, again, self-declaring themselves as this near-Arctic state. So they unveiled this really ambitious, it's called Polar Silk Road component of its Belt and Road Initiative, where they have a, a major role in the Arctic. And then there's also, you know, again, Russia bringing ships in, submarines, and even having a commercial presence in the Arctic, because they're also building new military and naval bases within the region. They're refurbishing old ones, expanding its already populated fleet of uh, nuclear-powered icebreakers and submarines. So there's this kind of this race to conquer the resources in the world's kind of final frontier. And it, it certainly has begun as we speak. And then there's, of course, Greenland. And Iceland, which are the centers of this diplomatic kind of tussle between the U.S. and China. So, you know, from a U.S. standpoint, the concerns about Chinese investments and the mineral uh, resources of Greenland, the geothermal energy in Iceland, and a joint project with even with Finland to develop a data silk road, you're seeing to be more evident, I'd say, in its diplomatic behavior. But again, I'll, I'll just say that as the great power rivalry between China and the U.S. ripens, there's a very high possibilities that tensions and conflicts and competition are rising in one part of the world and will spill into other regions. And that's kind of why I would argue, you know, that's why the Arctic will matter, whether you like it or not. And the Arctic remains vulnerable to some of these kind of, I'd say, strategic spillovers. That is fascinating. Well, hopefully we at the U.S. are being aggressive enough in combating some of the actions of counterparties. In the interest of time, let me switch over to the topic of cryptocurrencies, which you're also quite well-versed on. It seems like you're well-versed on everything. You know, recently, as of this recording, Bitcoin is back to all-time highs or, or near there. What do you see as the future for cryptocurrencies? And specifically, you know, how should policymakers think about this sector? Yes, yes. You know, it's funny, this year, 2021, has been a big year for cryptocurrency. I'd say it's difficult to predict where things are heading long term, given that prices are are obviously volatile in some way or another as as you look at the coming months. But you have a lot of experts out there that are following the themes from 
regulation to institutional adoption of crypto payments, trying to kind of get a better sense of the market. But with regards to policymakers, you know, yes, they're, they're trying to figure out how to establish the laws and guidelines to make crypto safer for investors and, and, and less appealing to cyber criminals. In fact, just I think last month, the Federal Reserve Chair said recently that he has no intention of banning cryptocurrency in the United States. So like most things with cryptocurrency, though, regulation can come with hurdles. And so we're looking at how different agencies may or may not have jurisdiction to oversee everything. There's also been recent proposed legislation that could make it easier, for example, for the IRS to find cases of tax evasion when it comes to crypto, though investors should already try to keep records of some of those capital gains or losses in their assets. But ultimately, I'd say many experts believe regulation is a good thing for the industry. You know, if you have that, it could be a win for everyone. If it's sensible, it gives more confidence to people in the crypto field. But I think it's something we kind of have to take our time on and we have to try to get, to get right. But it's certainly evolving and exciting to watch. How is the U.S. dealing with crypto on a regulatory basis relative to other nations? Is there a big difference between how the EU is doing it? There's probably a very big difference between the way China is dealing with crypto versus the way we are. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, every country is going to be a little bit different depending upon their energy consumption and what resources they have available. Because as you know, just mining in itself is very intensive, if you will. China, believe it or not, has stopped. So that's given actually the U.S. a greater opportunity for mining in, in an environmentally friendly way and so forth. I would say it's it's still very early, you know, seeing El Salvador, for example, being the first country to make cryptocurrency or fiat currency. And you're starting to see others. Brazil is looking into that as we speak. The mayor of Miami is now accepting all his salary in Bitcoin, <laughs> interestingly. So we're going to see a lot more examples, whether it's at the state and local level or even with other states and countries and that stewardship behind that. And there's sort of a crossover between your climate experience and crypto, because like you said, crypto is very energy intensive in order to mine. So how can the industry be more sustainable going forward? Excellent question. You have, for example, the Bitcoin gold rush, but it comes with this catch. And if anyone's been following Elon Musk's Twitter and is very well aware that there's this massive electricity consumption, for example, it's Bitcoin's decentralized structure, if you will, that drives this huge carbon emission footprint. So you need that in order to verify transactions for those who may not know, but it requires computers to solve ever more complex math problems and algorithms. So this basic concept that cryptocurrency is drastically more energy intensive and so so with the verifying of the transactions on centralized networks, we're seeing more of that. But to be able to mitigate some of the issues, there's a couple of ways to look at it. One, you could start by switching to renewable energy, which I'm starting to see a lot of companies do that, which would be cleaner, less carbon intensive, and embrace what's called pre-mining to try to avoid wasteful computing involved in solving math problems quickly and, and, and kind of earn those digital coins. Some cryptos have introduced pre-mining that would really work more like a fiat currency currency or stocks. You know, you have a central authority like the U.S. government or a company in the case of stocks that will create this set of amount of, of an item and then carefully releases it into its economy, depending on what's going on in the world, of course. So having these pre-mined cryptos, they'll work the same way. Also, you can also introduce carbon credits or fees. Carbon credits work similarly to represent government-sanctioned ability for a company to kind of emit a certain amount of carbon emissions into the environment. So even though I know they're often scrutinized, meaning they can be traded to by companies that don't need to produce a lot of the emissions or other companies that do, but it incentivizes a company to produce less than its allotment. Mm -hmm. And of course, penalize those that go over. 
So again, when you think of a crypto mining company, this might mean it, it will purchase carbon credits from another company to kind of help offset the amount of emissions it creates or switches to greener energy, if you will, so it can earn a profit from selling its credits. Some of those choices, I think, could be helpful with the waste and make it less energy intensive, as well as being cleaner for the environment. And that's sort of a good segue to a little bit of discussion on climate, because you were the first ever chief resilience officer for the state of Florida, and then you were head of the resilience office at the White House. Can you talk through a little bit what are the national security threats faced by the U.S. as a result of climate change? Absolutely. You know, I've worked in the intelligence and Department of Defense agencies before, so it's great to see our intelligence agencies right now, as well as DOD, issuing recent reports warning that there's a warming planet. It will certainly increase strife between countries and spur to migration. So, for example, you take countries like Algeria, it could be hit by, you know, lost revenue from fossil fuels, even as their region faces, you know, worsening heat and droughts and things like that. So it's great to see the Pentagon, for example, warning now about food shortages and that could lead to unrest along with fights between countries over water. You've heard about these resource wars, if you will. It's also great to see the Department of Homeland Security, which includes the U.S. Coast Guard, their reports are now warning that as the ice melts in the Arctic Ocean, you're seeing competition that will increase for fish and minerals and other resources. Another report warned that tens of millions of people are likely to be displaced by 2050 because of climate change, including as many as 143 million in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America and so forth. You're seeing this nexus, if you will, and having been able to work at least for a little while at the local state level just to deal with sea level rise, it really ties into the national security element and also, you know, what we could do as a nation together that can address the impacts of climate change today. Well, you've seen in the EU how a few million refugees can make a big impact on a lot of countries. I think you said 143 million and it seems like things are always a little bit better or a lot worse than the prediction. So if that number is on the outside and it's actually closer to 200 million for all we know, because it's very hard to predict 25 years in advance, it's sort of hard to wrap your head around the impact of that many people being displaced. You know, there's a narrative, which I wanted to end with, there's a narrative that improving our environment is at odds with business and economics. Should we accept that framework? Is it always going to be a zero sum or is there a way to bridge that gap? That's an excellent question. You know, sustainability is the backbone of business. You can be both pro-clean energy and jobs and pro-environment. So we don't have to choose between the two. If you think about a strong economy and a healthy environment, they're not only complementary to each other, but they depend on each other. I'd say the key drivers for economic growth, think about resource efficiency, for example, infrastructure investment and innovation. It can all be harnessed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And it's, I think, a logical connection, actually, you know, to have a more efficient economy is a more productive economy and a more efficient economy also emits less carbon. So it certainly goes hand in hand. And I, I certainly do not accept that notion that you have to be at odds of one or the other. Well, that gives us some hope for the future with everything going on. Julia, so appreciative of your time today. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. 